An investor's investor. Weird. Always thinking. Smart. Thoughtful. Unconventional. Hi, I'm John Lukumnik. Welcome to Outside In, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals and anyone else who values different thinking. What does that mean? Well, we interview fascinating people from Shakespeare scholars to financial data scientists to see what the financial community can learn from non-traditional sources and from traditional sources thinking in non-traditional ways. We're breaking down the silos which too often surround the financial community. Come, listen to the sounds of those walls collapsing. Today on Outside In, our guest is Matt Hogan, who's been the vanguard of not one, but two revolutions in finance. As CEO of ETF.com, he had a major role in educating the world about exchange-traded funds. And ETFs now hold more than $7 trillion, yes, trillion with a T, in assets. And now, as Chief Investment Officer of Bitwise, which manages more than $1 billion, sorry about only a B, in crypto assets, Matt is again educating the world, this time about digital assets. That's why his opinion has been sought by a who's who of the financial world. And I don't just mean crypto people. Mainstream media, including Barron's, Bloomberg, The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, Institutional Investor, CNBC, and The Financial Times go to Matt to help explain what's happening. His professional qualifications are suitable. He's co-authored two seminal CFA Institute publications. Not surprisingly, one was on ETFs and one is on crypto assets. So welcome, Matt. Thanks for having me. That's a wonderful introduction. Really pleased to be here, John. So what's your origin story? I mean, we find that interesting people often have had interesting lives with lots of Swiss and turns. For instance, I understand you were a philosophy major and did a stint inside a minor league baseball mascot uniform. <laughs> and today you're one of the most important people in digital assets. So how did you come to become the person you are professionally and personally? That's Exactly right. A classic philosophy, minor league baseball mascotting finance background. If you've heard one of these stories, you've heard a million of them, John. Um, I actually think philosophy for what it's worth is a phenomenal major for someone moving into the financial space. And the reason for that is not what people think. It's like this, this wonderful esoteric medium. It's rather that all philosophy writers are terrible. Like Kant was a terrible writer. Uh, even the Scots were terrible writers. All the Germans were terrible writers. So what you do as a philosophy major is you read terrible writing and you try to digest it and turn it into something that someone can understand. And the course of my career has been exactly that, whether it was in ETFs, taking this topic that no one understood that seemed complex and trying to make it simple, or the same thing in crypto. Crypto is the land of hype, hyperbole, and misinformation. Taking that and trying to make it simple and digestible for people is what I've done in my career. So that was actually important. Now my, my actual career path took many twists and turns out of college. I was a sea kayak guide. I sold shoes at L.O. Bean on the midnight shift. Uh, I was a minor league baseball mascot. I worked in the biotech industry. I worked as a speed trader. I moved to Mexico for a year with my, my wife and my dog. Um, but I was always, always pulled back into the financial services industry and uh, really fortunate to to form a partnership with Jim Wine and Dave Nodig and a few others and build out ETF.com and Inside ETFs. And then uh, really deeply fortunate to be able to do that again in crypto. So 
it's a fun, fun journey. It's been a fun life so far. Let me just delve into a little, any philosophers you particularly identify with? Hmm. That's a great, that's a great question. I spent a lot of time uh, with the Germans and, and Kant and Nietzsche. I wouldn't say I, I, I identify with them, but I, I enjoyed their, their thoughts as particularly challenging. I spent a lot of time thinking and writing, uh, around the topic of, of free will and, and, um, uh, engaging with that at a very deep level. Um, no, no, no one particular calls out to me at this point. No free will, Thomas Hobbes, Leviathan type of thing. Yeah. I, 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 I never came to a satisfactory answer on free will. So I never resolved that in my mind of, of how I think, how I think it exists in the world, how I think it parallels the world. It's, it's a deep level of intellectual discomfort that I have with it. As a result, I found all of those people slightly wanting, uh, no, no one, no one solved it for me, uh, was my experience. And that maybe that's a valuable experience. It was certainly a frustrating one, uh, at times a, a frightening one. Um, and, and one that I still wrestle with today in the, in the spare moments I get between crypto and having three kids. So, as you said, good writers make the complex seem simple without losing too much of the nuance. And you're a good writer, a novel educator, a communicator. But I have to say, and I say this as someone whose career started as a reporter or writer as well, digital assets seem incredibly complicated. Not the least because crypto is not just one thing. There's everything from cryptocurrency to distributed finance, now distributed finance 2.0. And each seems to have its own jargon as you hypertached. You get the extreme views, the proponents arguing, it's the foundation of a new financial system, impartial and democratic and universal access. And then you get the detractors talking about extreme speculation, environmental degradation, and facilitation of the dark web and money laundering. So it's a little daunting to understand. I mean, I've sat through somewhere like 2,500 hours of information sessions on digital assets, and I continue to find it confusing. So is there a simple way to explain digital finance and what it could do? Yes. Yes. I'm glad you asked. Like most things, it comes down to a fundamental understanding of the underlying technology. And the great thing about crypto assets is that the underlying technology of a blockchain is actually really simple to understand. John, if you give me three minutes, I think I can explain everything you need to know about crypto. Take three minutes and five seconds. Three minutes and five seconds. Okay, great. John, do you know about PayPal? Have you ever used PayPal or Venmo? Sure. Everyone's used PayPal and Venmo. People rarely take a moment to consider why PayPal exists. The reason is, is it, it exists. It's a superpower. It lets us move money instantaneously, right? I can send you $100 and you get it instantly. And the reason that's useful, the reason 200 million people use it on a daily or monthly basis is that our traditional banking system is slow. Now, people don't stop to ask, why is PayPal fast and why are banks slow? But the answer to that explains everything you need to know about a blockchain. And here's why. PayPal is a walled garden. So inside PayPal, when I say, I want to send you $100, PayPal can look and it sees that I have $100. It knows I haven't sent it to anyone else. And it can transfer it to you as fast as you can change one line in an Excel document. One, day, <laughs> one database can be extremely fast. The reason banks are slow is because they're thousand databases. So if I give you a check and you deposit it at your bank, your bank has to check with my bank to make sure I have the money, that I haven't written 10 checks on, on that same account. 
that there isn't another check floating out there. A thousand databases are slow. All a blockchain is, is that the first time we've ever in history had one database that's available everywhere, that's open to everyone, that everyone can see, that updates in real time, that's always accurate, but which no single party controls. So when you hear the word blockchain, just think PayPal without PayPal. Think PayPal meets the internet. Now, why does that explain everything you need to know about crypto? Because it lets us do three things we've never done before. It lets us move money at the speed of the internet, right? You can send a billion dollars to anyone in the world, have it get there in a few seconds. It allows us to program money like you could program software. And if you think about what programming money could mean, it could mean disrupting all of traditional financial services. And then the third thing is it lets us have digital property rights for the first time ever. This is actually the biggest one. Before a blockchain, if you wanted to own a digital good, you had to have a third party maintain a database that says you own this digital good because it's just letters and, and numbers, right? It could be copy and pasted infinitely. But once you have one universal database that everyone agrees is true, which no single third party maintains, you can own a digital good in the same way that you can own a physical good. So those are the three primitives, move money instantaneously, program money like software and have digital property rights. The reason there's so many narratives is because those three primitives allow you to do a lot of things, allows you to revolutionize the financial infrastructure, and it allows you to engage in new forms of money laundering. It allows you to disrupt social media and it creates things like NFTs where digital rocks are trading for $3 million. If you boil it down to what is a blockchain and what are its fundamental capabilities, you actually understand basically everything about crypto. I'm not going to let you get away that easy. Um, so move money understood. Yeah. Um, that's your PayPal without PayPal. Yeah. We can get that. Um, digital ownership. Yeah. The story today, um, you mentioned NFTs, which are non-fungible tokens, these sort of rights of digital ownership that are manifested on our blockchain. Um, there's a, uh, famous, uh, ape, um, owners, um, marketplace for, uh, some art. Um, someone alleges that because of a hack, they allowed someone else within this walled single blockchain to buy stuff that they weren't selling and now they don't have ownership anymore. Mm -hmm. And you know what they have to do? They have to go to a court in the real world, mm -hmm. not the digital universe, mm -hmm. and they have to file a suit in the real world. So is this a little bit of hype? Because if there is a hack, mm -hmm. which is just a theft in digital world, mm -hmm. um, you've got to go to the real world. This is a blockchain court to decide it. So is it a little bit of a hype to say that it actually allows for digital ownership and proof of ownership? Well, no, not any more so than if, if someone stole a painting from your wall, you'd have to go to a court to prosecute it. The underlying blockchain didn't get hacked. What got hacked was the individual's ownership of that blockchain, or rather a platform that facilitates that individual ownership of that blockchain. The fact that this new world has to occasionally interact with the traditional legal system is not surprising. Um, there have been experiments in crypto where people have agreed 
that you wouldn't interact with the traditional system, that the code would be long, which is to say that if packed, it would just on. But what we've understood is that that absolute pure form is not is not right. Now that doesn't mean that crypto won't significantly disrupt huge chunks of the financial ecosystem. The financial ecosystem is the slowest, least disrupted industry in the world, right? The largest bank in America was founded in 1798. Try to find another industry where the largest company in the space was founded in the 1700s. It doesn't exist because they've all been disrupted by technology. Finance has been isolated. So just because you have to interact with the traditional legal system occasionally doesn't obscure the fact that you can do things exponentially faster, cheaper, better in this new blockchain enabled financial infrastructure than you could in the old infrastructure. So I grant your point, but I think it's a, uh, a 1% case and 99% still remains true. Okay. I want to get back to the, uh, the disrupting finance a second, but before I do that, I just want to ask about your second use case, yeah. which is programming money. Mm -hmm. Can you just expand on that a little? What does that mean? Sure. Uh, think about trust agreements, right? Like imagine a trust agreement that says, I'm going to give a million dollars to my son, Patrick, when he turns 30. Right now we take that trust agreement and we wrap it in a Brioni suit and we put it under a big banner and we charge thousands of dollars for it. But at the core of it, that's just a simple if then statements or rather two if then statements. When the person with this social security number reaches this age, release a million dollars from this account. That can be programmed into software and executed effectively for free uh, instead of being wrapped in that Brioni suit. And it's not just that trust agreement. Think about a loan agreement, right? I go and get a loan. They check my credit score. Uh, they check my income and they release that loan. They don't judge me by my handshake. At least they're legally not supposed to. It should be an algorithmic scoring at the execution that determines whether I get that loan or not. Now, there's no reason that that has to take 30 days or 60 days or 90 days to process. It can be processed automatically if all that scoring is integrated. So that's, that's what, those are examples of what I mean by programming money. And it's, it's not hypothetical. Usually when I give those examples, people are like, Matt, you're talking about the Jetsons. This is like 30 years from now. There's no way we'll get there. But right now there's a crypto asset program called Aave, where you can get a collateralized loan for a hundred million dollars processed instantly. There's a crypto exchange that's decentralized called Uniswap that does the same thing as Coinbase, but has no employees that's processing $50 billion of trading per month with zero employees. So you are seeing these early applications of what programmable money can mean, and it I, I feel really confident it will disrupt traditional finance the way Amazon disrupted Sears. It's just exponentially more efficient. It's not perfect. It has challenges. It has limitations, but those can be, uh, I think, surmounted uh, relatively quicker, quickly, uh, faster than most people uh, expect. I get it. Um, my second book, What They Do With Your Money, cited a study by economist Thomas Philippon that prove that while every other sector of the economy has become more efficient, finance had not. At the time we were with the book in 2015, it cost 2% to put a dollar to work or in the language of finance, intermediate the dollar. Amazingly, it also cost about 2% in the 1880s to build the transcontinental railroad. So the finance sector that's rolling out 5G is 
every bit as inefficient as the fight or efficient as the finance sector that's, um, you know, this financing messenger RNA and transcontinental railroads. So it's very strange that it hasn't changed, it, it's, uh, you know, and of course, at the same time, more of the finance of the economies become financialized. So the 2% is a huge inefficiency. So I have two questions for you. Yeah. First, why do you think finance has been immune from being forced to become more efficient, unlike every other sector? And second, why is it different this time? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. So just to, just to layer into your example, you can Google for the people out there, uh, the first Western union money order, which was like in the 1800s and they were sending $350 across the country and the fee was $30. And guess what? If you wire money today, the fee is exactly the same and we're not using Pony Express and railroads and it still costs $30 to send $300 across the country. It's absolutely absurd. People ask me like, you know, how did you get attracted to ETFs and then crypto? How did you, you strike gold twice? And the, and, and the answer is, uh, one of my core philosophies is that things that shouldn't be true eventually aren't. And one thing that shouldn't be true, uh, is that it shouldn't still cost $30 to wire money across the country. If it cost that in 1880, eventually we will solve that. Um, so why, why is it taken so long? I think it's, um. Finance has always been one of the most regulated industries in the U.S. And disruption is hardest to do in highly regulated. I'm a fan of regulation, right? I live in Berkeley, but disruption is hardest to do in a regulated environment. One of the other slowest to evolve industries in the U.S. is healthcare, which is also extraordinarily regulated. By comparison, retail is significantly less regulated. Automobiles, even, and manufacturing significantly less regulated. So I think there is a regulatory story that has delayed it. And then the, um, the, the, the burden of getting things wrong is very high in finance, right? The burden of getting things wrong is very high. And so, um, people want extensive security before they transition to a new technology. And then the last piece is honestly, it's a computer science issue. We didn't have a way <laughs> before blockchains to enable this open transfer of money, uh, the blockchain concept is a big idea in terms of facilitating the transfer of valuable bits as the internet was in terms of facilitating the, the, the transfer of communication and, and bits without value assigned to it. It really is a fundamental computer science breakthrough, um, akin, I think to the internet and, and as a result, it's going to finally enable us to rewire the backend. I just don't think it was possible before, before blockchain. Let me give you another proposed reason, uh, power finance has been a powerful industry for years. And so it's been able to either co-opt or cripple challenges. Technology is the first sector that is probably equally powerful to finance. Mm. Um, and therefore finance can't just buy it all or change it all. Um, I, I sometimes have told friends, you live in Berkeley, I live in Manhattan, that San Francisco is attacking New York. Um, do you think there's, there's an element of power here that, um, technology became so big so quickly that finance couldn't co-opt or cripple it? Yeah, I think, I think that is true. I think that's a good, uh, that's a good example. Technology is a giant factor. 
Uh, and you're actually seeing, so one application of that that's really true right now in crypto is you're seeing crypto become extremely adept at lobbying, at working with Washington, at working with regulators. That wasn't true five years ago. It wasn't true 10 years ago. Technology wasn't even good at that 10 years ago. Finance has always been very good at that, right? The revolving door between Wall Street and the SEC has been spinning really fast for 100 years. And it's now starting to spin pretty fast in technology and it's starting to spin pretty fast in crypto. So that's one example of how that size really uh, could, could, be, um, could be a game changer here. So I like, I like that example a lot. Where are we in the maturation curve of digital assets? I mean, we call the crypto trade spotter. Um, so where are we today? As we record this podcast at the end of February, 2022, where have we come from in a year and where are we going? I'll let you pick your time frame for how far out you can see the future because things change rapidly. You ever looked at a chart of Amazon stock? I'm old enough. I'm 45. So I remember the internet bubble and I remember Amazon went, you know, way up and crashed way back down. And it felt like this, this sort of Himalayan size mountain range when you looked at a chart of its development, right? It puttered along for, for part of the nineties and this huge up and down. But today, if you scan out, it looks like this tiny blip on a map. You almost can't see it, right? It almost doesn't matter. I feel we are in crypto somewhere on, on the other side of that. Uh, eventually we're going to look back at the developments we're seeing now, and they're going to look minuscule compared to the impact that we're going to see. I think that process will take five to 10 years. Um, but that's, that's one way of answering that question. I have another way of answering the question. Uh, you know, Jeffrey Moore's book, crossing the chasm, you read that book. It's, it's an interesting book talks about how, um, technologies are adopted in the world. It talks about how most, almost every technology has early adopters, right? We all have the friend who has the newest iPhone, or we have people who are using VR goggles. And then many technologies fall into a chasm. And the chasm exists because the technology is imperfect. Like when we put on VR goggles, we get, uh, we get nauseous or early stage biotechnology could not scale to medical grade, uh, solutions. Some technologies make the leap over that chasm. You can think about the internet when we got Hotmail, uh, becoming widespread or when we got Google becoming widespread, that's when a early stage technology finds mainstream application where crypto is right now. Is in my opinion, it's just crossed that chasm. We're starting to see the earliest signs of mainstream adoption. Happy to talk about what those are. Um, but we've solved many of the sort of existential threats that limit early stage technology. Many the the sort of things that could make crypto not quite go away, but always be a tiny piece. I think those have been resolved. So I would say we're just past the chasm. And just at the earliest phase of mainstream adoption, I suspect it'll be three to five years before most people are doing things like authenticating onto websites with crypto wallets. Um, but I think that will happen uh, in that kind of time frame. I think it's going to be an accelerating curve from here. What's exciting you right now? What are you passionate about? In crypto land? Anywhere, you personally or crypto land or DeFi land? which we haven't really, you know. Yeah. Uh, so many things in crypto land. I'm, uh, this will sound, uh, dorky, uh, but it's the first example. I'm really excited about what's going on in DC. Uh, I'm excited with regulatory progress we're seeing. 
I think it's going to lead to the next large bull market in crypto. This perception that there's huge regulatory risk in crypto, what we're hearing from Congress, what we're seeing in the, in the proposals is actually a pathway to sort of regulatory green lighting of crypto into the mainstream. And so, um, I think the next three years are going to be way more exciting than the past three, in part because regulation is going to allow it to go mainstream. More broadly than that, I'm really excited about what's happening in NFTs specifically. Um, one thing I love more than almost anything else is places where the public's understanding of what something is, is very different from the real understanding of what it is. And what the public's understanding of NFTs is right now is that there are these pictures of cartoon-like apes that are selling for extreme valuations. And the reality of what NFTs are is that they're the, this idea of digital property rights, which I think may be the biggest single idea I've encountered in my professional life. And we're going to see this incredible Cambrian explosion of applications of this. Um, I was reminded of this recently, there was this article in Science about how NFTs could revolutionize medical records. Right now, your medical records are stored by your doctor in these separated databases. If you go from one doctor to the next, you can't carry your medical records with you. That's another one of those things that exists in this world and shouldn't. In the future, in NFT land, uh, you can own your medical records in an NFT format and port them from one doctor to the next and authenticate to allow those doctors to access those NFTs and add to the medical records. And you can bring those from one doctor to the next. We're going to see not just a few of these applications, we're going to see a million of these applications. I really think digital property rights is a ginormous world-changing idea and the world's appreciation for NFTs right now is stuck on board apes and crypto punks. And it's such a massive disconnect that it's really fun for me to, to think about, watch, look at, imagine. Let's end with a couple of uh, quick questions and answers. How do you relax? I go for runs. I really love running. Yeah, someone who runs with you told me that um, you run so fast and so effortlessly that you run as if you've stolen something. <laughs> what do you think about while you run? Yeah, oh, that's a great question. Um, I try to think about nothing. There's a meditative element for me for running. But what I find is that the, the trickiest problems that I'm having at work, the trickiest ways to describe something that will connect with people, um, all those come to me when I'm running. So like the PayPal analogy came to me when I was running, um, my early definition of what ETFs are and how they work came to me while I was running. Whenever I'm stuck at work, I go for a run, but on a, a stride by stride basis, I try to think of nothing. What music do you listen to? Well, a lot of the music here in the Hogan house is dictated by, um, by my kids. So there's a lot of, a lot of current pop music. Uh, when, when I control it, it's some mix of eighties and nineties music that I grew up with, uh, some sort of Cuban, Cuban jazz, big fan of, um, and pretty eclectic is the answer. What are you reading? I've been reading a lot of books about food. Uh, I, I just read, uh, Alice Waters new book about food, which was uh, a little preachy, but pretty moving. I just reread, uh, Anthony Bourdain's book. I've been reading cookbooks. I've been thinking a lot about food. 
you know, we're in this period before the great time of food uh, in, of the year, right? We're in the tail end of the winter when we're all tired of winter vegetables. And I think my body is really excited for, uh, for asparagus season and then tomato season. So it's been, it's been food and cooking books that I've been thinking a lot about. I, I won't postulate that, uh, that's something that, uh, you can't appreciate digitally. But, uh, <laughs> I love, I love both sides. That's very funny. Um, if you could be on vacation right now, where would you be? Uh, if I could be on vacation right now, where would I be? I think, I think I'd be in Mallorca or, or Corsica in the late spring, since you didn't qualify the time of year. I think, I think that sounds perfect. I was just looking at pictures of Corsica, the beach, the ocean, some hiking, really good food. It's hard to beat all four of those things in one place. And those are, those are two examples of, of where you get those things. Last question. If you could magically whisper into everyone's ear, what's the one thing you would tell them? It almost always works out for the best. A core part of my philosophy is optimism around technology, around life, around the world. The world focuses on problems. Problems are good to think about, but um, there's tremendous progress in the world. There's tremendous progress in, in people's lives. So there's, there's a lot to worry about. There are a lot of issues, a lot of things to correct. But I think, um, I think optimism is both borne out by the facts and, uh, and a powerful tool for, for sort of shaping your life. Thank you. We're very pleased that Matt Hogan has been our special guest on this edition of Outside In. I think you've heard his ability to make the complex appear understandable, uh, perhaps even to be understandable. Um, and as someone who has been at the cutting edge of uh, two financial re revolutions, certainly worth listening to and thinking about. Matt, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. Outside In is hosted by John Lukumnik and produced by Elizabeth Thompson for Spark Network. You can find our show on Apple Podcasts, where we'd love it if you leave us a review, as well as on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon, and wherever else you get your favorite shows. To get more information about our show and to stay in the know about future episodes, sign up for our newsletter on sparknetwork.com.